Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Go ahead and take a seat. Thank you, worship team. We're going to uh, spend the bulk of our time today in John chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you, I presume you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. John chapter 9. I want to ask you a question before we get into that specific text, and that is this. Why did the Jewish leaders hate Jesus so much? I'm talking about a red-faced, toxic, vein-popping hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did they hate him so much? He was walking around with these disciples, doing good works, feeding people, taking care of people, teaching people, not asking for anything. But the Jewish leaders hated him with an irrational hatred that led to his crucifixion. In John chapter 9, we're going to see one of the reasons, and we'll unpack that together. But I I studied the first eight chapters, and of course, in the first eight chapters, it doesn't give the entire description of what happened and why the Jewish leaders decided he was a bad man and worthy of death and their irrational hatred of him. Uh, The rest of the Gospels will will describe other things, but I, I I think there are several patterns we see in his ministry that cause the Jewish leaders to have a particular antipathy toward him. And this is important as we go into John chapter 9. Remember, he ruined their business venture in the temple. Remember uh, early in John, in John chapter 2, they were uh, uh, selling offerings to people. They were selling offerings that weren't acceptable, weren't in accordance with God's written law, and they were making money off of it inside the temple. He made that whip and he drove them all out. Well, that ticked people off. He called himself the Son of Man, which is, if you'll remember, uh, taken from Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man in his glory uh, is presented before the Ancient of Days. It's the picture of the two two persons from the Trinity together, the Ancient of of Days being pictured as the Father, the Son of Man, the glorified Logos of the Trinity. But he's presented before the Ancient of Days. And it's when, when the Jewish leaders heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, they knew what he was saying. He was taking upon himself a glorified uh, position, and they hated that. He claimed to be God in human flesh, John 5. He didn't say, I am God, but he used the term, I am. They sought to kill him, John 5 says, because he called himself God's son, making himself equal with God. They hated that. He accused them, Jesus accused them of seeking glory from one another. Rather than seeking glory from God or seeking God's pleasure, these leaders, these men sought glory from one another. Aren't you great? You're fantastic. Oh, I think you're just wonderful. You must be a godly man. And Jesus said, no, that's wrong. You guys love the the, the wonderful greetings in the marketplaces and you love to wear phylacteries on your on, your, on yourselves. You seek glory from one another. They hated hearing that. He seemed ordinary. He was ordinary in the flesh. 
if you just looked at him. He wasn't formally educated. He, he didn't have the, the right pedigree for respect among the Jewish leaders. He went to no particular, synagogue, no particular school for training. But people listened to him. They listened to every word he said. And they followed him. He was such an ordinary man. In John 6, they said, well, isn't this Joseph? Isn't this Joseph's son, the son of Joseph? He's just an ordinary guy. In fact, he's from that little stinking town called Nazareth. Who does he think he is? Who do you people make out him to be? He's just a, he's a nobody. He caused divisions among the people. Some people accepted him and, and wanted to name him the king of the, Jew, uh, king of the Jews right away and make him a political uh, king, king. Some wanted to arrest him. Some hated him, the Jewish leaders in particular. He caused divisions among the people, which made it hard for them to lead the people, to keep them under subjection. How about this one? Jesus insulted their very core. He said that they loved Satan himself, and that they didn't love God, they loved Satan. You are the son of your father, the devil, he said in John 8. Just prior to John 9, he said, you are the son, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires, Satan himself. That's why head-spinning fury at Jesus. And then the final one, he healed on the Sabbath. We saw in John chapter 5, you may recall, uh, the healing uh, of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, where Jesus healed him and told him to take up his mat and go home. And then they said, well, the Jewish leader said, you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath, you're taking up your mat, you're bearing a burden, carrying your mat and going home. That's working on the Sabbath. It's probable that the man was walking all over Jerusalem in celebration of his newfound legs. It's important to remember as we go into John chapter 9 that the Sabbath was really very important. It's the fourth commandment. From Exodus 20 verse 8, it's the fourth commandment. You do no work on the seventh day. God made the world in six days. On the seventh, he rested. Do no work. The problem is what entails work. Remember that Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath? Uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so that uh, uh, the Sabbath wasn't uh, put into place so that men could honor the Sabbath. The Sabbath was put into place so men could rest in accordance with the way God put together the world. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In Gen uh, um in Jeremiah 17, we see a, a further description of what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. Uh, in Jeremiah 17, the Lord affirms through the prophet Jeremiah the importance of the Sabbath. God, uh, Jesus did not come to break the law, but to fulfill the law. He respected and followed all of the laws. The problem was that the written law from Exodus, or the written law that we're focusing on in Jeremiah, was not the oral tradition. What the, Jew, what the Jewish leaders did is they had the, the written law from God himself, and then they put fencing around it. They put a layer of fencing around it to protect the law. And then they put another fence around it to protect the law. And so if you broke the fence, you broke the law. If you broke the fence, you broke the law. There were about 39 types of work that the Jewish leaders said you could not do on the Sabbath. Plowing, uh, tying a knot. You could not tie a knot on the Sabbath. You could not loosen a knot. Now, is that in Exodus 20 or is that in Jeremiah 17? No, you couldn't tie a knot, you couldn't loosen a knot. You could not sew two stitches together. Uh, you could not put out a fire. You could not light a fire. You could not bake. You could not knead, make dough and knead together with, with water, for example. You could not walk in sandals that have nails. 
because you're bearing the burden of carrying the nails in the sandals. This is what the Jewish leaders wrote in their oral tradition. You could not cut your fingernails. You could not pull a hair out from your head or from your beard. That was a breaking of the law in accordance with the Jewish leaders. The Passabox might appreciate this. You could not give medical attention to someone unless he was dying. If a, if a man came to you and he had a broken leg, you could not set the leg. You might be able to pour cold water on it, but you better not set that leg on the Sabbath. You could only prevent death. It's not okay to do anything else on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus, remember, when he wrote the law, he wrote the law. He didn't write the oral tradition that came from the Jewish leaders. And when he broke the Sabbath, they were even more furious with him. And we're going to see that in John chapter 9. We're going to see the consequences. We're going to see what it means to follow hard after Christ. You're going to see a man who's going to be healed physically of his blindness. He was blind from birth, healed physically from his blindness. And also there's a metaphorical picture of us, each of us. If we know Christ today, there's a metaphorical picture in this account it's an accurate account. Truly, a man was literally healed from his blindness by Jesus the Christ. But there's a metaphorical picture of our own spiritual blindness from birth and the, the healing we enjoy through our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, you are truly awesome. We read the, uh, the account of your works in the Gospels, your words in the Old Testament, who you are, and you are worthy, Lord, of our praises, of our devotion. Why did they hate you so? Unrighteously hated, righteously loved by those who could only see you for who you are. Thank you, Lord. I'm thinking of uh, John 6:44, where you say, um, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Unless the Father draws him, and that word draw, Lord, as you wrote, is a dragging. It's not a come, please, come with me. It's not that. It's a dragging of a dead person into life, a reluctance, an inability on your own to do anything of worth, of spiritual value, Lord. You gave that to each of us who know you. We are grateful, Lord. Help us to be more than just speaking words of gratitude, but live lives that demonstrate our love for you. We ask this in Jesus' name as we consider John chapter 9, Lord. Thank you. Amen. I got a, a proposition for you today out of John chapter 9, and here it is, the big idea, as they say. Uh, John, uh, Jesus despises religiosity. He hates it. Uh, performance, posturing, pretending, he hates that. Uh, but Jesus loves a broken and a brave heart for him. He despises the religiosity, performance, but he loves a broken and then a brave heart for him. You're going to see that in this man in John chapter 9. We're going to take it in sections. It's a pretty lengthy chapter. But listen, follow along as we, as we go through this first section. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. It's interesting. He was blind from birth. He was made that way. Remember when um, Moses was protesting to God when God said he wanted him to lead the people of 
his, his Hebrew people, he wanted to lead them out of Egypt. Remember what Moses said? Uh, I, don't, I don't talk very well. I'm not your man. How can I lead these people? He was protesting so much that the Lord became angry with him, and he said, Who made man's mouth? Who made the deaf, the mute, the seeing, or the blind? Was it not I? Now go to Pharaoh. Who made man's mouth? Who made the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? God made him this way. God makes people as he makes them. He decides for his own sovereign purposes to make us as each of us is. But the Jewish people had this thought that sickness or defects are the result of sin. The interesting thing is that he was blind from birth. What sin could he have possibly done in his mother's womb? What sin could he have possibly have done? There was a school of thought within Judaism that, yes, an unborn child could sin. I don't even, I can't even begin to discuss that. We don't have enough time to go through that. But we would say that's not exactly right thinking. Who sinned? There was a presumption that his followers even had that uh, this man sinned or his parents sinned that he was born blind. Remember, I just quoted from uh, 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 Exodus, God's word to Moses. And Jesus said, in accordance with that thinking, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's a purpose that he had for making this man blind, and we're going to see that purpose. Years later, the purpose is revealed, and can you imagine the man born blind? And in, back in those days, if you were born blind, boy, you were in trouble. You had nothing to do with, but beg. If you didn't have a family that could take care of you, you were in deep, deep trouble. You couldn't work. All you had was begging. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Why? But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember in even the first verses of John, chapter 1 of John, uh, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or understand it. He is the light, and he's saying, as long as I am present with you, in the day, it's daytime. The night is coming when I'm not going to be with you, when no man's going to be able to work. Until when? Until Pentecost, when the Spirit comes. Work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. I won't be with you anymore when no man can work. Verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, having set the table that way, he goes to the man he spat on the ground and he made mud with his saliva. He spits on it, makes mud. Remember the law against kneading, against mixing so that there's dough? That's funny. It is funny, but it's what they accused him of. He broke the Sabbath because he was kneading. He, he was preparing something for baking, evidently, which you couldn't do. But he spits on the ground. By the way, in the, uh, the Jewish mind, there's a lot of value in the spit of a holy man, a godly person. But boy, when he spits on the ground he get, he, in the dirt and he makes mud and he puts it on the man's eyes, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, the scribes said, that is working on the Sabbath. <laughs> he set the table and verse 6, then he moves. He spits on the ground, makes mud with his saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and then he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. He was sent to the pool to wash. He went and washed, and he came back seeing. 
So Jesus worked on the Sabbath. Uh, don't forget, He is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's interesting, being Lord of the Sabbath, He decides what the Sabbath is and what it is not. He decides, not the Jewish leaders. They may pretend to be in authority, but they don't know who they're dealing with. They're dealing with God in human flesh who wrote the law. He doesn't even break into one drop of sweat in dealing with these Jewish leaders. He's not worried about them. Of course not. It's always amazing to think about if you could be there when Jesus was doing these things. He tells the man, go in the pool, go to the pool and wash. And he went and he washed and he came back seeing. In verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him, the man, before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Is this the same guy? Seems like an a goofy question because they should have known him, but they were so stunned at the fact that he could now see. He was, remember, he was never able to see anything, but now he's suddenly seeing. Is that my story? Is that your story of salvation? Remember I said it's a physical healing, but also a metaphor. Uh, the Lord is so brilliant that he gives us an account of a true and real life healing, and he also ties it to the salvation each of us has if we know Jesus Christ blind from birth, dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't see spiritually unless the Lord drags us into salvation from John 6, 44. He comes, he, he gives the man uh, his saliva mixed with mud, and the man comes back saying, all of a sudden, just like that, you're saved. The man's not saved yet in this story. You'll see the progression. So the neighbors are stunned. Isn't this, isn't this the guy who used to sit and beg? Isn't this the guy who used to be a pagan? In the metaphor, some said, it's he, certainly it's him. Others said, no, he's like him, he looks like him. Um, but the man kept saying, I am the man, I am, I'm the guy who was blind, don't you know me? I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he said, the man Jesus, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. It's as simple as that. I remember when I got saved, the pastor who led me to the Lord to receive Christ as my Savior, I said, you know, people are not going to understand this because I was a, a flaming pagan. Um, and he said, well, just tell them you were blind and now you see. And I did. Didn't help much. <laughs> Didn't help much at all. They thought, well, you're quoting the Bible now. What's wrong with you? It's okay. You notice he calls Jesus the man called Jesus. The man called Jesus. All he knows at this point is that this man called Jesus came, told me to do this, and I did it. I went and I washed and I received my sight. And that's good enough for him to say. That's good enough for each of us to say if we don't know much. And this guy didn't know anything yet other than God, that Jesus healed him. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know where he is. I just got my sight, right? I don't know where he is. I don't even know, I don't understand what happened, is what he's saying. Verse 13. So they, they brought the Pharisees, they brought him to the Pharisees. They dragged him over to the Pharisees who were going to be very unhappy people, even more unhappy than they were a minute ago. Now here comes trouble. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, and the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. He put mud, I already said this, I, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. 
He does not keep the Sabbath. Remember, the oral tradition, not necessarily the law of God. Now, if the oral tradition were correct, if it were in alignment with God's law, they were correct. But the Sabbath rules they met up were not in line with God's law. They broke God's law. They added more burdens to people than God himself did. Some said he's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Jesus causes division. Jesus causes division. You were once lost, you're now saved. Some people will say, you're out of your mind. Others will say, oh, welcome to the family of God. He causes division. If you haven't seen any division in your life over Jesus, then I'm, I'm going to ask you to consider the status of your relationship with the Lord. He causes division. In fact, he incites it. He incites division so that, uh, as Matthew 10 says, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Wife against uh, husband. Mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. All the relationships in the home. Someone comes to Christ, he causes division. He incites it. I did not come to be, bring peace on the earth, but a sword, he said. Um, in our culture, we are coming uh, closer and closer to the day. I know that uh, James uh, Kellams last week said, it's not cool to be a Christian today. And he's right, it's not cool to be a Christian. Um, and as we go further and further down this plat, uh, path of a post-Christian culture where uh, uh, Christianity is not even respected, it's despised, you're going to see more of this, that uh, Jesus causes division and he will incite hatred just because of the culture in which we live. So there was division, now they're fighting. And imagine what this blind man is thinking, hey, I, I was blind, now I see what's going on here. Verse 17, they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him See, since he has opened your eyes? Uh, he's a prophet. Okay, three verses ago he was just a man. Now he's progressing and saying, well, now he's a, he's a prophet. See, he's very brave now. He's very brave. He realizes what's going on. He's got some sense of stirring in his heart of what has just happened, that Jesus is causing division over his healing of himself as a blind man. He was born this way. He's causing division. There's surprise, there's mystery. And uh, verse... Uh, 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. You see, they're so, they're so steeped in their unbelief, in their refusal to believe that this uneducated, not very impressive man from a dump city like Nazareth could be such an important person. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where, where Paul says, not many honorable, not many honored people, just there's not many can, uh, are a part of this family of God, not many come to Christ, not many honorable, brave, or well-educated, or smart people come to Christ. It's just us. It's just like you or like me. So blind. It's ironic that the Jewish leaders were the blind ones, totally blind, couldn't see anything spiritually. Gloried in themselves, loved their own laws, oppressed people, and they decided they were so blind they didn't even believe that this man, who was obviously the one that was born blind, that he wasn't. They just didn't believe it. So they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they, in verse 19, they asked the parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? 
You're going to see how the parents react. Watch this. His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He's a big boy. He can speak for himself. Leave us alone. You dangerous Pharisees, you. Leave us alone. What's going to happen to us if we, if we attribute this miracle, healing of our beloved son, to Jesus, the man, the prophet, the what? The son of God, the son of man? What's going to happen to us? You see the fear. It says right here. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22. In parentheses, his parents said these things, why? Because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him, they're afraid. Now I ask you and I ask me, on how many occasions have I been confronted with my faith from someone who's hostile, where I say, well, you know, I, I don't know, uh, uh, gee, um, I'm not sure what to say. Instead of exhibiting the boldness of this man who was healed of his blindness or had his sight given to him, they hedged their bets because they were afraid. The fear of the man brings a snare. Just imagine the heart of God when I have failed to say what needed to be said because I love him and because I'm not afraid of people. If I have failed in that, in that situation, and I have, <clears throat> it breaks God's heart. If we could only get a grip on the personhood of God, of the personality of God, that he has feelings, things he likes, things he dislikes, things he loves, things he hates. He loves a heart devoted to him. He loves a broken, brave heart for him. They feared the Jews, and they weren't willing to speak beyond what they'd already spoken. They deferred, ask my son. He's of age, ask him. Verse 24. So for the second time they called the man who had been born blind, had been blind, and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Really? Okay. He broke the Sabbath. That's why he's a sinner. He doesn't like us. He doesn't respect us. He hates us. He, Jesus makes fun of us. Jesus says we get glory from one another. Jesus says all these terrible things about us. We don't like him. He's a sinner. And the blind, the man who was blind says in verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now listen to the snarky wit of this man. I want to tell you something. Snarky wit is okay to defend the faith. Enough of this, I have to be a mellow, mild-mannered little person who speaks of the love of Christ, and I can't say anything. I can't get my neck up to defend my Lord. No, that's not right. Remember in 1 Kings when uh, Elijah faced off against 450, 450 prophets of Baal. Do you remember that account in 1 Kings? There was a challenge to bring fire from heaven. And so the prop, 450, one man against 450, Elijah. And if you remember the, the account, uh, 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 the prophets of Baal were cutting themselves and screaming out, and, and Elijah s starts mocking them. He says, shout louder, shout louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's relieving himself. A nice way to say, maybe he's going to the bathroom. You're God. He's mocking them. He's merciless in his mockery of them. He's a prophet of God. And then later, 
Just to show you, Elijah was just a man. He is threatened by a woman named Jezebel, and he flees for his life. He faced off against 450 prophets of the devil himself, and he's sent fleeing by a woman who threatens him. Okay, he's just a man. A man on the mountaintop and a man in the valley, failing. A great man nonetheless. Listen to how witty this man is. Let it be an example to us. And Jesus does not rebuke him. It's okay to be witty and aggressive in defending our Lord. It's good, actually. Let's learn that from this man. He says, they said, what did he do to you? He's, the third time they're asking him. They don't want to believe. And he said, what, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. <laughs> Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? You Jews, you want to be his disciples? That's pretty snarky. It's pretty smart mouth. Well, hey, who, do you know who you're talking to? You're a blind man, and you now are yelling at the Pharisees who have the power to throw you out of the synagogue, and you don't care. Do we care? If I speak in my work or in my neighborhood, with my neighbors of people, if I talk to them about the faith, do I care if they're opposed? And am I willing to do what it takes within the boundaries of righteous indignation and righteousness to speak of Him with boldness, not caring what they think, but thinking, what does God think? What does God think of me right now? Because I may not do it perfectly, I may not even do it really well, but I'm going to do something. I'm not going to be accused by the Lord of being a coward. Why didn't you speak? Because we'll all face the judgment seat of Christ. All of our works will be examined. He'll examine me, he'll examine you. You're going, I'm going. Boy, may that day be one where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We're all being watched by the Lord, empowered by him, if we will only follow. Do you want to be his disciples? And they reviled him. <laughs> oh, man. They reviled him. They were accusing him of all kinds of wickedness, not even recorded here. And they say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And that's an interesting thing. Just a few verses ago, they said they know where this man comes from. In John um, um, 7.27, John 7, 27, the Pharisees again are arguing about Jesus. He is the source of all kinds of problems. Good for him, good for us, Lord. John 7, 20, 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. But we know where he comes from. We know where he comes from. Jesus says in another section, you don't know where I come from. He's driving them out of their minds. They know he's from Nazareth. He knows he's from Nazareth. He was raised in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, like the prophecy in the Old Testament, raised in Nazareth, a dumpster of a town, and he comes, and he's challenging them, and they say, we don't know where he's from, even though they do know where he's from, and Jesus said, you don't know where I'm from. Yeah, I'm from Nazareth, but you don't know anything more than that. He's driving them, so their head is exploding. A master, the master. <laughs> so they accuse, they revile this man, God has spoken to Moses, which he did. As for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the main answer is in verse 30. Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. That's true. God listens to sinners, to people who don't know him, when they seek him for who he is. 
not for who they demand him to be, not for goodies that God can give to us. He's got some theological understanding already from that. We don't know what he's, uh, his experiences before he was healed, before he was made to see. Verse 32, this is where he gets off track a little bit. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's not exactly right. Uh, we know that uh, uh, from Deuteronomy 13, for example, that it's possible for someone to do signs and wonders to impress people, but he's a false prophet if what he has done is designed to draw people away from what is known about, God's, uh, about God in his writings. If the prophet does a sign or a wonder that is meant to draw people away from the reality of who God is, he is to be stoned because he's a false prophet. You can see that in Deuteronomy 13. Now, understand, I'm not saying the Bible's not accurate. What I'm saying is the Bible accurately says what this man said. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. Now, that's an interesting thing. That's, that's a, a cruel reference to the man's birth as a blind person. You were born in sin. Not like us, the Pharisees, the godly people. You're born in sin. You've been a sinner. You were born in utter sin, the worst of the worst sinners. That's you. And would you teach us? And they cast him out of the synagogue. You see the pride in the Pharisees? The presumption of their righteousness, the presumption of their goodness and their righteousness, their godliness. They're not even interested to figure out to understand what Jesus did and how he did it. They really aren't interested. They want to castigate Jesus. They hate his guts, and they're going to criticize and ridicule, revile anyone who wants to follow him or gives him any credit for what he has done. They cast him out of the synagogue. His, his troubles were just beginning. If you get cast out of the synagogue, you saw how afraid his parents were of being cast out of the synagogue. You are cast out of the synagogue. You're, you have major troubles. You lost your social connections. You lost all kinds of support networks in the Jewish system. His troubles were just beginning. He knew they were going to cast him out. He did it anyway. What bravery in a brand new man who, who was just received his sight. What amazing bravery. What an example for us. Jesus heard they had cast him out and having found him. That's interesting and worthy of our closer look. Having found him. Jesus heard the news. He heard it from somebody telling him. He heard the news that, somebody, that they had cast him out of the synagogue, and he looked for him. It's interesting that um, this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. The fact that Jesus looked for the man born blind whom he gave his sight to. Listen to Ezekiel 34. God's mad at the shepherds of Israel. He's angry with them. And you'll see why in a moment as I just run through this quickly. Ezekiel 34, he's angry at the shepherds of Israel. He says to them, you eat the fat. That, that's the, the best part of the animal that you eat. You take care of yourselves, he's saying. You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Okay, charge number two. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them, my people. Here's another. 
My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek after them. No one to look for them, to find them, to bring them back. My sheep have become a prey, P-R-E-Y, a prey. My sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep. Therefore, because of all these things, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. That's a promise, as certain as the dawn. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. Ding! I myself will search for the sheep. I will seek them. I will bring them out. Jesus says, I am looking for you. He heard they cast him out, and having found him, he searched for him, right? You see how that's a perfect fulfillment from Ezekiel 38. He does exactly what he promised. God in human flesh. How tender he is. Just beyond words. He found him, he sought him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Daniel 7, or referencing his humanity as well. He answered, the, blind, the man who was blind answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. Who healed you? The man called Jesus. Who, what do you say of him? He's a prophet. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Lord, I believe. See the progression? He's just a man. He's a prophet. Lord, you are the Savior. You're my Savior. I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. Jesus never rejected worship, and rightly so. God never rejects right worship. He worshiped him. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. What in the world are you talking about? I've not come in the world world to judge the world, but that through him he did not come in the world to judge the world, but that through him the world might be saved. But this is the judgment. This is from John 3, 16 onward. But this is the judgment that men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. They demonstrated their love of the darkness by their deeds. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who who do not see may see. If you came to Christ, and I imagine, I'm sure you did, you came to Christ in a certain neediness. God loves that, a broken heart. We're recognizing your own need, recognizing the worth of Jesus. By definition, when he receives those who are broken, those who are not broken get rejected. There's no two ways around it. We can't come with our pride can't come with, oh, look, look at what I've done for you, Jesus. Aren't I a good boy or aren't I a good girl? You do it because you love him. 
For judgment, he says, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, like this blind man, like each of us, and those who see may become blind. The Pharisees thought they saw, but they were completely and utterly blind to a spiritual reality. Hateful. It's an irrational hatred. There's an irrational hatred the Jews had for Jesus, much of what you see today. When you see irrational hatred for your faith, someone who just cannot comprehend it, it's, it's demonic. There's an irrational hatred for you and then a picking at you in your character, a picking, a looking for any flaw that can be expanded upon and be a source of accusation. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things. It's obvious that by that statement that he was not speaking privately with the man. He was speaking in a way that others could hear. They heard him and they said to him, Are we also blind? Yeah. Yes. But Jesus said, If you were blind, you have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus saves the spiritually poor and he condemns the spiritually rich. So, the proposal for the day, uh, Jesus despised religiosity. He despises religiosity. He loves a broken heart and he loves a brave heart that speaks for him no matter how inept we might feel we are. And this man wasn't a theologian, but boy, what a brave man. What a man willing to speak up for Christ even though he knew very little. He loves that. Wanted to. Uh, you may have heard from uh, heard about Oswald Chambers. He was a Scotsman who uh, died in 1917. Uh, he he uh, he wanted to be an artist as a young man, uh, but he sensed the Lord wanted him to go into ministry. Just the Lord pushed him that way, and uh, he died in 1917, and he was. Uh, serving um, as a uh, chaplain, for lack of a better term, in, in World War I in Europe. And he, he became ill. He was only like 48 years old. But he became ill and he refused care because he wanted it to go to others who were wounded in battle. But the fact is that when he was so sick, he had a ruptured appendix and they did emergency surgery on him, but they couldn't save him and he died. But his writings were preserved uh, by his wife, uh, his sermons, his writings, and he's, there's a great little book called My Utmost for His Highest. My Utmost Giving of Myself for the Highest One in the Universe. Listen to what Oswald uh, Chambers has to say about this principle. Have I ever been carried away to do something for God, not because it was my duty or because it was useful, nor because there was anything in it at all except the fact that I love Him? Have I ever realized that I can bring to God things which are of value to Him? Not divine, colossal things, which could be recorded as marvelous, but ordinary, simple human things, which will give evidence to God that I am abandoned to Him. That's the ticket. Being abandoned to Him. Forgetting about yourself, forgetting about your reputation, forgetting about whatever might be uh, uh, dissuading you from speaking for him. Character is revealed under pressure. And this man passed the test. This man who was born blind. Character is revealed under pressure. Even as a, someone who was just getting to know Jesus, he passed the test. Doing things that are not colossal. You don't have to go off to Afghanistan to become a missionary. Just the ordinary things God is pleased with. 
Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. The more you go through trials, and the more you pass the test, fifth grade, sixth grade, spiritually, seventh grade, eighth grade, high school, if you pass the test, if you endure, and you persevere, and you learn, and you grow, the interesting, the ironic thing is that the closer you become to Christ, the more he reveals himself to you. You have a history of relationship to him. You young people haven't lived long enough yet to understand that deeply, but there's, it's true for you as well. In 20 years, as you, as you still follow Christ, you look back and you see things that you endured as a young person, and you'll be closer to him as you persevere, as best you know. Not perfectly, not without stumbling, but as best you know how. It's the brave heart that is willing to stand for Christ that gets the privilege of being closer to Him, even in your difficult days. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.